Hello again, and welcome back to Farron and Film. This is a special episode that didn't fit into our traditional genre, auteur, franchise series of episodes. At the end of last week's podcast, I mentioned that I'd once again be joined by Sam to discuss our favourite films from all over the world. This is still true, however, I've also been joined by even more staff from Oasis Academy Oldham, who were all keen to share their enthusiasm for films not in the English language. Once again, our discussion was recorded over a video conferencing app, so I can only apologise for any distortion or difference in the usual audio quality. That being said, let's get into it. Obviously, this is a huge topic for anyone to try and tackle, including the four of us, so the idea of world cinema in general. So the aim of this episode is for us to celebrate films and cinema from other countries that we generally struggle to achieve a mass audience here in the UK. We're fortunate enough to have cinemas local to us, so things like Home in Manchester and The Picture House at Factor in Liverpool, that champion not just world cinema but also smaller independent films so that a wider audience as possible have the access to see the ones that we're going to discuss today. Before we get into the main content of this episode, I'm going to share with you some context on world where world cinema fits in the GCSE film studies. So question two on paper two is based around world cinema, so global non-English language films. And the spec give us five different choices of films. So the choices that we are given are Spirited Away, uh, Sotsi, Let the Right One In, The Wave, and Wajda. So I teach Sotsi. Um, I was going to teach Let the Right One In, but it was not a suitable choice for the class that I had at the time. They're definitely not mature enough for that. Have any of you seen any of the others? Joe, go on. I- I've seen uh, the, the wave is the German one, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I saw the wave at, uh, at the pictures a few years ago. How? What uh, is the wave like? Because I've, I've I've seen bits of it and it looks quite good. I must say, I, I remember it as being quite a powerful experience watching it. Um, so, so I think the story, <clears throat> excuse me, the story is um, about a, a a politics class at high school, at a German high school, where. Um, They've got this great idea of trying out different sort of political right. ideologies and kind of having a model, I don't know, model debate or something about it. But it goes it goes too far, as as things often do. Um, and uh, I think the the, the wave I, th- I think refers to a gesture, uh, a communal gesture from a, a fascist uh, student movement that started as an act. But you know, it's maybe become more than an act, which is 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 a great lesson in in actual um, what's happened in politics and political culture since then. Funnily enough, um, so I, I I'd be interested to know what what students made of it. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it's it's, it's worth worth anyone's time. Mm. Holly, have you seen Spirited Away? Yeah, that's the one I would. Um consider myself a big fan of Studio Ghibli um I haven't included one in my list simply because I couldn't choose which one it was like choosing between my children um I would say Spirited Away I would recommend to everybody it's beautiful um and I think the main thing that I love about it is as a person who was brought up on Disney I have a very fixed view of the morality of a children's film. Disney films have a very fixed, very traditional kind of morality that they're feeding to children and Spirited Away just blows that out of the water in such a lovely and thought-provoking way. Um, Like the compassion all those films have for their um, kind of 
antagonists is is really like really different to to western films i think and and spirited away is a great example of that i must admit i'm tempted because there's a student in year nine currently who loves it and i am i'm tempted to see if i can go down the route of maybe giving her a kind of like separate scheme almost of like yes feel free to go into the to the exam and answer the question on this because clearly you know it quite well but I'm not sure how that would work in terms of teaching I know other teachers do it um but I'm interested to see if that could work at all um okay so what we've done is we've each written up our top five films not in the English language uh, I've made it very clear that I didn't want any of us to share our top fives before now um, so I'm hoping everyone's kind of stuck to that, which is fine. Um, and so basically what we're going to do um, is that that is in the hope that there's going to be a lot of different films for us to talk about, a lot of different countries for us to talk about, and that no one essentially has copied each other. Um, teacher hat is now off. Uh, so what I'd like to do, actually what we're going to do first is we're going to start off with Sam's top five, because um, he needs to shoot off in just a little bit. Um, but then what we're going to do afterwards is that myself joel and holly are going to basically round robin our fives then our fours then our threes and our twos and then our ones what i'd like to make sure that we do like throughout is so for instance when sam is about to go through his top five if sam's number three is also on your list don't spoil it yet okay we'll keep it as a surprise and just keep stum. do you um, um sorry sorry adam do you think we we might have time, do you not think? If there's only five and we just round robin them or, or... We can try it if you want to try it. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do then. We'll do it and we'll, we'll yeah. keep the round robin thing in. And then if it gets to a point where you need to shoot, you could yeah. just do your three, two, one, for example. Yeah. Do you want to do that? Yeah, we'll do, do that, that then. We'll do right. that. Right. So before we get started, has anyone got any honourable mentions that didn't quite make the top five? I've got one. Holly, you've got one. Joel? You don't have to. Don't feel pressured. But I mean, the thing is, you know, like, obviously, you know, I had a very long list and a lot got cut and others. I'll leave you guys to it for the for the extra bonus ones. OK, um, I'll, I'll, I'll kick off then. Um, so my honourable mention actually was in my list for a while um, until I found something out about my number three choice, which I'll get to when we get to that. Um, so my honourable mention is a film called A Man Escaped, which is uh, a French film from 1956 that was directed by Robert Bresson. Uh, I first watched this when I was in university and we had to look at it in terms of cinematography. And it's one of the finest shot films that I've ever seen. Um, it's black and white. It's about uh, a member of the French resistance who is held up in Montluc prison or Montluc prison um, by occupying Germans during World War II. And it's just a really simplistic narrative. It's just about a guy in prison and how he plans to either get out, break out, or what he's going to do once he's out. And I just thought it was a really kind of nice, uh, really simplistic narrative. And yeah, it was it was in as my number five. And then I found something out quite late, which changed everything. Uh, Holly, do you want to go with yours? Sure. Um, this is a film I just really like, but it is a very small film and it is very silly, um, which is why it's eventually been edged out by something a bit more serious. Um, it's called Rare Exports. Uh, it's a Finnish film um, from 2010. The director is Yalmari um, Helander, who has done one or two films in English. Um, I think the last one was called Big Game. Um, but he uh, financed this film 
by making shorts and putting them on uh, YouTube. And that built enough kind of energy to to finance this film. Um, It's essentially a Christmas horror. Uh, So a family of hunters, uh, reindeer herders and hunters in uh, Lapland, are um, they find all of their reindeer have been slaughtered and they don't know why. And it turns out that a local group of miners just over the Russian border have dug something up and that something is probably Santa Claus, but it's not the Santa Claus we know. Um, and I think what I love about it is that it is uh, kind of it's an homage to um, John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, there's a lot of Spielberg in it in the relationship between the boy and his father and the boy's point of view that you have all the way through the film. But it's never tongue in cheek. It actually does function as a kind of horror film at the same time as being very, very silly. Um, and yeah, I wanted to get I wanted to get Finland in somehow because that's my my adopted country of choice. Um, but yeah, check check that out as an antidote to sickly sweet Christmas films. Next time we get round to December, rare exports. Um, big thumbs up. I saw Sam's face kind of flick up when he said Christmas horror. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've seen a few. Um, it it reminds me, like, yeah, I've seen loads of silly films, Krampus and stupid things like that. So, yeah. Have you got any uh, things that you want to mention, Sam, that didn't quite make your list? It was one that got kicked out of my list, yeah, and it was. I think it's it's my most recent one. So it's it's not one that I've watched many years ago. Um, it's the one I've seen most recent. It's called Train to Busan, um, and it's a South Korean um, horror, 2016. Do you know of it? Um, has anyone heard of that film? I've, well. I've heard of it. It's. I, I think, to be honest, I think I bought it on iTunes recently with the plan that I'm going to watch it, but I've just yeah. not gotten to it yet. They've just made. They've just uh, announced a sequel um, to it, but I found it really, really. I wasn't expecting much, and a friend introduced me to it, and it, it was just a different take on the zom- uh, zombie genre. And I, I just found it really good. How a different. Like I think the biggest thing is for me. Um, I think I think Holly might have mentioned it or Joel before about how. Um, foreign films do things differently with the narrative. Things that you're so used to seeing at Hollywood, they, they spin it and something completely different and takes me by surprise because I'm so used to the the winning formulas that you get from from Hollywood. And I think that um, Train to Busan definitely does that for, in terms of the the zombie genre. Anyway, so worth a watch, but nothing nothing too deep. It's just a good a good horror flick. I really yeah. loved Train to Busan. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, really good. I think I need to I need to get around to it. I must admit. Okay, so we'll start our top fives now. I've essentially done this, like I said, in round robin format, um, but so that everyone gets a little bit of a different turn as when to pitch in. Um, so I'll go first now, and then next time round it'll be someone different. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with my number five. Uh, so my number five is The Devil's Backbone, um, which was released in 2011, which is a Guillermo del Toro film. Uh, primarily probably made in Spain slash Mexico. That's as, as broad as I could get. Um, it's definitely in the Spanish language. It's about a 10-year-old called Carlos who arrives at basically a school or an orphanage after he's lost his dad. And it's basically sheltering all of these children during the kind of Republican militia and politicians and things like that. So you get the feeling that there's a bit of a war going on. There's some kind of dispute, some kind of conflict that's happening. And... Um, it, essentially, it turns from this almost 
kind of similar to Boy in the Striped Pajamas aesthetic drama to a ghost story and a kind of haunted orphanage story of this kid Carlos starts seeing the ghost of a small boy and things like that. And again, this was another one, as with a lot of foreign films that I've seen, that I watched at university. And it was kind of like my way into maybe the films of Del Toro, things like that. Um, and to me, it's just, it's horror in an unusual setting, which I think is a common trend across Del Toro films. And you kind of get the little inkling of some kind of fantastical nature that's going on um, in these films, which obviously he then expanded on when he did things like Pan's Labyrinth um, and even Shape of Water. But for me, I think I prefer, I prefer this to something like Shape of Water. I've still not got around to Pan's Labyrinth. So I know that, yeah, eventually I'm going to have to catch up with that at some point. Um, but anyone seen Devil's Backbone? Anyone got anything to add on Devil's Backbone? It's good, Holly. I would re- I would recommend it. I think I think I'll watch Pan's Labyrinth. You watch Devil's Backbone, and then we'll go we'll go that way. It's been uh, on my to watch list for a really long time. Yeah, this is the thing. Yeah, um, it just yeah it just keeps floating around. Um, okay, so Holly, your number five, please. Sure. Uh, my number five is from Indonesia. Uh, it's called The Raid. Uh, <laughs> Big smiles and laughs from everyone else who's watching. So you know of The Raid. Uh, It's from 2011. Um, I'm not at all biased because the director is Welsh, um, but it does help. His name is Gareth Q. Evans, um, and uh, it's it's just a fantastic action film. I think it's the best action film since 2000. Um, The the genre is kind of action, martial arts. Um, It has quite a familiar setup where... Um, looking at the point of view of a rookie cop who finds himself in the back of an unmarked van um, speeding towards a tower block. Um, He gets the briefing in the van, which is already quite suspicious that there is a drug lord who has taken over this block of flats. He's set up um, his his, um, drugs lab um, on the top floor and given his lieutenant's reign of different floors in the um, apartment block, so no one can get to him. Um, and the police have been given this this mission to uh, fight their way up the tower block to reach him. Um, but of course, it all goes badly um, quite early on, and they realise that um, this is very much off the books, this mission. There's no backup coming, there's no extraction team, and our rookie has to fight his way out. Um, I think the thing that I absolutely love about this film, I love action. Um, I get very, very angry with a lot of Hollywood action films that they replace the choreography of the fight scenes with sound effects. So it's just shaky cam, shaky cam, sound effect, sound effect to mask the fact that none of the actors are actually making contact with each other. And in the raid, it's all about the fight choreography. The um, lead actor, Iko Awais, is a choreographer and and martial arts expert. The type of martial arts they're using is um, particular to Indonesia. It is called Penkak Silat, which I've never seen in film before, um, but is very kind of aggressive, very um, quick, not as balletic as something like Bruce Lee. but I, I just, I, I loved every second of this film. Every fight scene is 
is adrenaline pumping. You see exactly what's happening. You really root for our hero. Um, and even though it might tread a few um, obvious action film plot points, uh, it, it does it in a very original way. The setting of going up floors in a tower block really reminded me of computer games. Um, so I was in from the start. Lots of nodding. What did you think of the raid? Are you fans? I I, I love the raid, Holly, and um, it's on my list as well. Um, shh, and, shh. Oh oh oh! Shh, shh. Sorry. Um, we like the raid, Sam. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Great film. Love mm. it. Uh, Sam, you're going next, actually, with your number five. Is it right? Okay, so number five for me was um, the original girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, I think this was directed by, I think he was Niels Arden Oplev. I think, I don't know if I've got the pronunciation right. Um, and I think what I liked about this film is I originally, what, well, I think my wife was reading the books actually um, on holiday and that prompted us to watch the films and I found them to be quite complicated. Um, well, she said the books were quite complicated, but the films I found were quite dark, which I don't know why, but I seem to be drawn to. Um, sometimes darker synopsises and plots and things. And I just like the idea of, or the character mainly of um, Lisbeth, who's um, got a lot of um, sort of a fractured upbringing and a lot of history and a lot of abuse going on. And just how she sort of uses that to, to or that motivation to stop other people. And she's sort of like this, I suppose you could see her as like, she's a, a rebel in a way, but she's got a really good heart and draws you into the character and her relationship with um, the main character in the film, which I, I just felt that as it went through, it had me a little bit with the, the twists and the turns as well. And it took a while for me to sort of think who it could be. And it had me guessing for a while as well. So that was also a little bit different. Whereas with Hollywood films, I find that you can pick up the uh, perpetrator quite quickly in them films and they're a bit predictable. But yeah, um, 2009, I think this this film was, and then I know they've adapted it later on, uh, I think 2011 with Daniel Craig in it. But um, And I think this was the start as well of um, Naomi Rapace. I think it was, it sort of um, put the limelight on her and then she went on into Hollywood and she does a great performance as Lisbeth as well. So yeah, I, I put this down as my number five, uh, Swedish maid, um, but had everything um, and, and, and gave me them sort of, um, twists that I wasn't so used to. It just uh, kept me thinking. But that's my number five. Um, has anyone seen the Swedish one? I have indeed. Yeah. And that is all I'm going to say for the time being. Good oak. Uh, Joel, your number five. Um, all right. So um, what I'm going to say first is that four. I think four out of my five. Uh, I think uh, chosen um, around a sort of particular idea or, or answering a particular problem. Um, and I think one of the opportunities of world cinema or thinking about cinema or literature as a, as a global phenomenon is to um, uh, sort of be able to see your, your own civilization, your own culture and other cultures at a sort of distance. So you're on the outside looking in. Um, or on the inside looking out, whichever, which way you, whichever way you want to see it. I think that's quite a powerful thing to be able to do. Um, so I, I won't give this long preface for every film, but it's just this one so that we can get it out of the way. 
Um, but there's a classic essay. I told Holly about this and she thinks it's absolutely great. So she's really pleased to be hearing this again now by uh, a guy called Walter Benjamin, who possibly you might have seen on your, your course at uni, Adam, I don't know. Um, and he, he wrote an article on the, the philosophy of history. And there's this one aphorism that's really famous from that, where he says, there's no document of civilization, which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. So anything uh, you have that supports a kind of beautiful uh, artistic culture, you think, oh, this is great. Uh, at the same time, that has in it something extremely barbaric. Um, you know, so all the great art in the Western tradition, yes, oh, okay, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, what amazing civilization um, Michelangelo exemplifies, but um, you can read the barbarism in there as well. That governs four of the choices I've made. So my first one is actually a musical from the 60s, um, but it's from China. And it's called The East is Red uh, from 1965. Um, and this isn't a film I've watched many times. I've watched it once or twice. Um, but what's amazing about it is it's so involving as a musical film, um, just like something like Oklahoma in, in America, um, even more so, I think. Uh, these dance routines, these songs, it's just this absolutely astonishing um, work of art. I'm just going to sort of grab a couple of quite rubbish screenshots that I've taken from YouTube into the chat so people can sort of have a look at the kind of tone. It might take a moment to upload. Um, but of course, this is at the absolute height of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. So probably one of the darkest periods in Chinese history and in world history as well. So for me, a film like this, um, which I found immensely engaging at a sort of entertainment level uh, and a political level as well, um, owes itself to, to this time when, uh, you know, massive destruction was being wrought on, on the people of China. Maybe the lesson is, for me, like, you think to yourself, well, how do these terrible things happen in a country like China or a country like Germany or, or whatever country, how do these terrible things happen? Um, and when you look at the, the cultural output, like the East is red, actually you, it starts to make sense. And you can see, well, I can see, you know, I can see how people could, could watch this and think, you know, I love this, this is brilliant. Yeah, I love uh, the cultural revolution. Um, you know, this stuff about Mao being, the absolute best well you know take it or leave it but i love all this dancing this this whole culture industry the culture industry that surrounds the, these terrible times um that i guess that's how they happen so i'm sorry i'm, I'm diverting from actually talking about the film but um i guess i just wanted to put that out there as, a, as an idea and i'm sorry my screenshot's not, not uploading uh, very quickly so you'll have to wait and see for that um but that's my first one 1965 the east is red um, government-produced musical from, from China. Fantastic. Very interesting, that, Joel. Uh, I've not heard of that guy, by the way. But I may, maybe I did and I just forgot. But that might be my ignorance. You mean Benjamin? Yes. Um, yeah, well, I mean, he, he, he wrote a lot about media and stuff. Um, worth, worth a look if you... Oh, awesome. a, have a look. Next minute. 
Uh, okay, so we're going to move on to our number fours. Holly, you are down to kick us off with your number four. Okie dokie. I will try and talk about something that isn't on everybody else's list. I'll try my best. Um, so my number four choice is The Hunt, not the recent um, American film, uh, but from 2012. Um, it's from Denmark. Uh, it's directed by Thomas Vinterberg, and it's a, a drama but as a teacher, it's more of a horror film. Uh, it stars Mads Mikkelsen as a secondary school teacher who's lost his job when the local secondary school closes and he's moved back home to his hometown um, and gets a job as a kindergarten teacher. And while there, um, one of the um, young students uh, forms a, a bit of an innocent crush on him. Um, and through a couple of scenes where we see her her brother perhaps exposing her to some some inappropriate imagery she hears um some inappropriate chat from older uh, siblings and her parents are arguing quite a lot she makes a, a statement about having um that this teacher has exposed himself to her um the head teacher of the kindergarten hears this starts an investigation which from the start is deeply flawed we see the psychologist and the head teacher questioning the girl in incredibly leading ways they're, they're doing their best and they come from the right place they want to find out if she's been abused um, but this all leads to a situation where this teacher loses his job the small town where he lives is kind of whipped up into a hysteria um, he's he's violently violently attacked he's arrested he um is is hounded his son who lives with him is equally persecuted by the town for this act which when i watched it i felt was perhaps ambiguous whether he'd done it or not reading reviews in preparation for this podcast everyone puts in the synopsis wrongly accused so perhaps i was being I was trying to sit on the fence a bit too much. It does very much portray this teacher, Lucas, as um, put upon as, as extremely stoic and, and, and very desperate to, to show his, his innocence. And, and you really do feel for him. It's a horrific situation. Um, but it has one of the best final scenes of any film I've ever seen. Um, I don't want to spoil it for people who are going to watch it, but it's heartrending and and you fear for his life through the entire film. Um, and Mads Mikkelsen's performance is is phenomenal. He won uh, the award for best actor um, at the Cannes Film Festival where it was shown, um, and it's absolutely deserved. Um, so yeah, I would I would definitely suggest checking it out if you haven't seen it. And as teachers. Um, please be prepared to bite your fingernails entirely off during it. This this is another one that is on my list. Um, that again, I think I've got through iTunes and is just the way in for me to watch. And it's Mads Mikkelsen, who I'd known from you know Casino Royale and things like that. But really, when I watched Hannibal, I was just like, I want to kind of see everything that this guy's done. And The Hunt is one that is definitely up there that I, I need to check out at some point. Uh, Sam, I'm your on mute, mate. Play the game, come on. 
Um, I think you've mentioned it on the spec a second ago, if I weren't right or correct, but it was let the right one in. Was that on the GCSE spec? It is, yeah. Yeah, I, I went with that one as my number four. Um, again, been remade recently, but I, for me, there was um, another another horror genre film in there, but I just loved the the relationship between, um, is it Oscar and Ellie, I think, and how they sort of have that sort of, unique friendship but obviously there's that darkness to it with her being a vampire um and just how i suppose that she even though she's seen as the enemy how she ends up coming to rescue um oscar at times and how they have that bond even though he's quite fragile and vulnerable um and i just thought that that made for a really good film something a little bit different um and i i really enjoyed it it, it was um different and it was dark and it, i seemed to be drawn to it so it was it was really good. Um, so I think that was um, a, another Swedish made film, um, and I've got it here. I think it was, was Thomas Alfredson um, who directed that. So yeah, um, really really good film. I enjoyed it. I remember a lot of my friends introduced me to to some of these films. Just when we just finished uni, we'd have like film nights and things, and I think a few of them used to be really fascinated with foreign foreign cinema. So they'd always have one or two that they'd seen and then they brought and we'd watch. And it was normally through them that I would, I would um, watch this one, I think. And it was, it was really good. So that's my number four. Yeah. Um, have you, have you seen the remake? Then let me in the remake. Is that with Grace Murat? Is it? Yeah. Well, yeah. Glory Grace Murat. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What did you think of it? Um, it's never as good as it. That's the only thing I'll say. Um, yeah. And um, no, I, I just think it's best to be left. Alone. The original was the original for a reason, and as soon as uh, Hollywood get their hands on it, they, they sort of just do it their way. Um, but the original is is was fine in itself. What did you think it was better? Well, I, I did it the other way around. I ended up watching the remake first, right? And then went back to the original, right? Um, but you can kind of the, the issue with like Hollywood remakes and things like that is that they essentially use the original film as a storyboard for the new film and we just get all the same shots all the kind of you know same stuff and it gets a little bit like well where's the kind of the artistic vision or anything like that where's the kind of new stamp on this the interesting thing is i think that the director of the most of the recent of the remake i should say i'm sure i read in an interview that he tried to put it off as oh i just remade the book I didn't think about remaking the film and it's well no clearly some of these shots especially with the playground and oscar on the kind of the climbing frame and all that kind of stuff they, they are lifted from yeah. the other one there's no way that this is coincidental at all um but yeah that was uh joel you're up next with your number four okay so um i realize this actually this actually builds on then you mean, but also through his mate Adorno. Um, and the, the film I've chosen is a film about Auschwitz, so, and not just Auschwitz, but the whole Holocaust, um, called Shoah by Claude Landsman. Um, I don't know if that's uh, been on anyone's radar, um, but that is uh, an, uh, an eight hour, was it nine hour documentary um, about the, the, the death camps in, in the Second World War. Uh, and I chose this because it's just such a remarkable 
text that um, the big problem of, of, of talking about the Holocaust is how hard it is to describe or comprehend or present in any meaningful way. And stuff like the boy in the striped pyjamas or Schindler's List kind of show how possible it is to um, represent that time in, in a completely uh, disrespectful way or a way that um, just doesn't do even start to do justice to, to, to the enormity of, of the crimes that were being committed. Um, and what Shoah consists of, and, and the word Shoah is, uh, is, is the preferred Jewish word for the, for the Holocaust. Holocaust is a, is a Greek word. What the film consists of is these very long interviews with survivors, with, with prison guards, when, when the director's been able to find them, um, with all people who are involved in this system uh, from all stages, you know, train drivers, uh, working class farmers from, from, from the villages near these camps in Poland. Um, and it doesn't pretend to, to be able to narrate that, uh, that time period and those, those dreadful events. Um, it doesn't sort of make a claim to be able to, to give you a narrative that explains it but gives you this really intense um, presentation of, of, of what, this, what this means to, to the people who've survived. So I've, for example, I've just dropped a, a screenshot into the chat, um, which is of one of the, the, the interviewees who's interviewed a lot throughout this eight hours. Um, and you can see this quite odd little setting in a barbershop in, in Israel. Um, from this guy who, who emigrated to, to America after the war and then um, later emigrated to, to Israel. Um, but he's sort of pictured in, in his working setting, cutting hair, um, but he'll be talking about, you know, cutting, cutting the hair of these, these uh, prisoners who are brought to the death camps before, before getting exterminated um, while cutting hair in this... In this um, you know, everyday job. And so I think f for me, it kind of um, helped with my understanding in of how um, an event so impossible to understand was having a traumatic effect on people right through to, to, to the 80s, 90s, um, for the rest of their lives. Um, so Again, this comes back to this, this contrast of, of civilization and barbarism because, you know, film, this is civilization, isn't it? But we're talking about the, the, the worst act of barbarism in, in, in European history, more or less. Um, so I think the, the innovative nature of the film as a kind of really, really long film um, that just sort of puts the camera on these people and lets them do the talking, um, that innovation needed to happen to to, to be able to comprehend the, the paradox, uh, the contradiction of what was going on. Um, I realized, you know, I could, should have come into this podcast with a few more notes about what I wanted to say about these things, because I'm, I'm ending up just doing what year 10 would call bear waffling. Um, but I think I'll leave it there. I don't know if anyone else has uh, heard about or seen Shoah, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's worth the, the eight or nine hours of your, of your time. Um, I was just going to say, you mentioned um, Schindler's List and the boy in the striped pyjamas as as perhaps being disrespectful 
um, dramatizations of what happened. I wondered if there are any dramatizations you've seen of um, the Holocaust or that time in European history that you think aren't so disrespectful. The one that's come to mind is Son of Saul. Um, but I wondered if there was anything else. I mean, yeah, um, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert here, and but Son of Saul, um, I think we may we may have talked about that before, haven't we, um, Holly? Um, and again, I think maybe what's interesting about Son of Saul is how it does um, have quite an experimental approach to 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 the subject, and it's quite a distressing film to to watch. Whereas, you know, watching Schindler's List is like watching Jurassic Park. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you about Son of Saul, and I won. Yeah, I, I guess I'd throw the question back to you, Holly. What do you think um, would make that a positive watching experience for you? Um, it, I, I think the the difficulty I had watching it. I think anything about that time probably should be quite difficult um, to watch. Um, yeah, I, I don't have an awful lot of words to describe Son of Saul because it it was just so devastating. Um, but yeah, I would recommend that as well. But I would very much like to see this documentary too. It sounds great. I mean, maybe that's the point: is that if if the film hasn't been totally devastating uh, in in a very profound way, then um, it's not really worth anything. Anyway, thank you very much for those questions. Did you watch the full thing in one go? You know what? I didn't because um, I've had it for for years. Uh, with the intention of setting aside a Saturday, yeah. Um, but I, I, and, I, and I know people who have done that. Um, I, I watched it maybe about an hour or two hours a day over Easter, uh, so I lost some of the effect um, through that. Uh, you know, more almost more like a you know series on TV, which which wouldn't have maybe existed in quite the same qualities. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, people do watch it in the in the full format. I think it would have been screened in the full format. Um, originally, um, and I, I feel like I let myself down by not setting aside that time. But uh, you know, I feel better for having having at least tried to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I thought about this the other day because I was thinking about um, when we do our eventual documentary special, um, which, by the way, is going to have to be a top ten and not a top five because my top five very quickly turned into a top fifteen. Um, the weirdly now we're in the kind of period where we have what we call short form documentaries but then the short form documentary is essentially a longer form than the long form documentary because a short form documentary now is a 10 episode series on Hillary Clinton for example or Michael Jordan when actually we've gone away from the old kind of here's a two-hour documentary about Michael Jordan instead we're going to watch six one-hour episodes all about him and all about his life whereas actually like you're saying with Shoa if it was released now it probably would have been released as a series there's no way that someone would have gone over here's an eight-hour documentary enjoy it Netflix would have chopped it up as soon as it kind of got through to them okay my number four is City of God uh, from 2002 uh, Brazilian film it is put here, Portuguese language that's spoken throughout it, directed by Fernando Merier. I'm, I'm going to say this now. My pronunciations of things are going to be absolutely awful. Um, so there's the apology, because it will keep happening. Um, it, it's set in the favelas in Brazil. And the kind of the, the, the big thing for me about it, the, the reason why I enjoy it so much, is 
I mentioned before about a Manscaped, how it feels quite small and contained and you're in a small, simplistic kind of setting and you've got a simplistic narrative, all that kind of stuff. City of God is huge. It is absolutely huge. It makes Brazil seem massive because I suppose actually Brazil is massive. But the amount of different settings and locations that they go through, the story itself, it's just an epic kind of sprawling thing. And, you know, it's if you're not aware, it kind of it starts towards the end of the 1960s and we come all the way forward to the beginning of the 1980s and we effectively see a couple of characters, so mainly Rocket, who is kind of the, the eyes of the audience, if you will. We see the film through him, him growing up. We see um, a he begins to be known as Little Dice, and then he becomes a Little Z towards the end. He's a kind of antagonist for that film. We instantly hate him. He's a little, yeah, a word that I'm not going to use. Um, but it's just it's seeing that progression, and we start off seeing them a little bit older, and we go backwards. So the intrigue there is straight away of how how are these two characters going to progress? What is the situation that they're in now? They seem to be kind of following the same paths. They're of the same neighbourhood. They, their families know each other essentially where do we go from there and this was one of those films that similar to something that I'm going to talk about in a little bit kind of crossed the boundary that kind of foreign language film boundary where actually it had quite widespread critical acclaim widespread commercial success it was nominated for the uh, best director at the Oscars in 2004 it was nominated for best cinematography and film editing and it was weirdly it was Brazil's entry um, for the best foreign language film at the Oscars, but it didn't get nominated in that category. But actually, strangely, they nominated it for director, which is typically unusual for a film to be nominated for director for a foreign language film. And for me, this was, it wasn't a university one, this was a sixth form one. And actually, this may have been the first foreign language film that I ever saw. Um, I can't quite remember if it was, but it it was definitely amongst them. And it was just, it kind of, I just fell into it straight away. So yeah, that's my number four. So that's City of God. So moving into our number threes, uh, Sam, you're going to kick us off with your number three. Yeah, uh, my number three was one that's already been mentioned. Um, it was The Raid, 2011, and I think Holly's mentioned, to be honest, mentioned it really, really well. Um, and for a lot of the same reasons was the reason why it was number three higher up on my list um, but you'll notice that the list um, has gone from two horrors to like martial arts and that they're sort of the main theme um, with my love for foreign films um, and yeah for the same reasons I just found that the action I mean I, I was really big into martial arts growing up um, as well and it's really spectacular the like the choreograph scenes and the fact that it's real um it's just fantastic the martial arts in the film and obviously the action as well which draws you in and it has that feel as well to um there's a, a judge dread film not the original there was one that was done later on with carl urban and it has a similar sort of feel where it's a an apartment block and them trying to get to the top really and then there's all sorts of problems that go it has a similar sort of feel to that film but I just was really drawn in by the action and the sort of grittiness to it really really enjoyed it um that's my number three but I think Holly covered a lot of the the main points about why it's so good um and yeah the raid is just a little bit higher up for me that, that's uh that's my choice Adam did you um did you watch the raid or dread first the raid yeah 
I did, then, I did the same, yeah. Oh, have you seen the Dread film as well? Yeah, so I, I remember watching The Raid because even though it's a 2011 film, I think we got it in 2012 yeah. in the cinemas over here. And I remember going watching it and then I remember seeing a trailer for Dread and just thinking, this is this is The Raid. This is, this is the same kind of thing that they're going here. And I wondered if there would have been a crossover. And I actually remember, I think it's Alex Garland who directed Dread. He said in an interview, and I think Gareth Evans said the same thing, actually, that there's no chance that they could have copied from one another because the raid would have been in heavy production as Dread went into pre-production. And they wouldn't have known that each other's stories or anything like that. So because people were kind of going like, well, why have we got Dread essentially remaking the raid? But yeah, it was just it was an interesting one for me. and I'm kind of glad you mentioned it as well. It just had that same I always think of the raid. It's just a a weird um, a weird sort of crossover, maybe a coincidence. But um, I just thought that the fight scenes as well. I mean, for me, that that's the thing I look for. Like, it's a really big thing. So, like Holly mentioned about how Hollywood sort of puts the sound effects in and things. I mean, when you find like something really authentic with the fight scenes, it it, it makes a real difference. Um, and another one that was going to be in my list, and I don't know if, if Holly's seen this one. Um, but, but again, it goes down a martial arts route was on back um, with Tony Jar, I think it is, and um, Tony Yar. And that was another great film, uh, not uh, pure choreographed, great martial arts in that as well. Uh, Muay Thai sort of style, really, really good. So um, that was going to be in my list, but um, it didn't quite make it. OK, Joe, you're number three. Okay, so um, number three is a silent film from 1928, uh, and it's The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is from France. Is that right, Adam? I do not have a clue, mate. Okay, um, I'm, I, I just I just doubted myself for a moment there. The um, the kind of the cards in between the um, the, vi- the visuals are, are in French, but it's and it's by uh, Carl Theodor Dreyer. Um, so I, I don't know, this one is, is, is really more like one that's just had a, I don't know, I've seen it a couple of times and really, really arrested my attention. And I think um, I really love going back to, to early cinema, um, especially pre, pre-talkie era stuff, because uh, it does so much to engage your attention. It does so much to um, interest the, the audience. And so I think in a, in, a, in a era where we're so used to, to colour, we're so used to sound, uh, we're so used to special effects, um, I think it's easy to be dismissive about, um, you know, slightly, slightly simpler methods of production. Um, but artistically, it's just, I think, astonishing. And basically, this is a sort of a historical film about the, the martyrdom of Joan of Arc and mostly consists of her being questioned by various church figures and uh, then being at the end of the film led to um led to the fire where she's she's burned at the stake um and a lot of what you get is really just the the these close-ups on uh joan's face with this very short haircut um these great big eyes um and you're, you're it being invited to take a lot from the face, take a lot from the eyes, take a lot from the expression, um, and maybe not from 
the action that surrounds it so much. So when we do get action, when we do get things happening, typically it's seen from her point of view. So I've just dropped some <laughs> screenshots again into the chat box where, for example, she will see this uh, terrible hook on a, uh, a cart that's passing by with these instruments of torture. So I've, I've frozen that as a snapshot there, but that's literally like a couple of seconds, less than a couple of seconds maybe. Um, and you see that on screen and then you go back to her face with a, a very subtle look of terror on her. Or even later when she's going to her execution, there's a really remarkable bit where it's almost like a festival. There's this carnival atmosphere and you can see a guy there who is uh, putting his leg behind his head while balancing on, on one, one foot. Um, and this is just these are just things you see for a moment as she is being moved along in a cart to to her doom. Um, and there's something quite difficult about that, putting us in this position of someone who's who's suffering in this way, who's who's fearful in this way, yet absolutely devoted and absolutely committed to to her to her religious cause. Um, so I think maybe this was a film for me that showed just how much could be done with with the silent medium um, and in terms of world cinema maybe it speaks to an era where uh kind of national cinemas were maybe maybe less important than they are now i'm not such an expert on this but i know sort of after 1930 or so where you know talking started happening in films there's plenty of actors who went out of um, you know, who, who lost jobs, they weren't able to work because of uh, having uh, unusual voices or, or accents that weren't appealing or not being able to speak the language where the films would be sold, um, which seems like, like a loss to me. So it, it felt like a relevant choice here. Uh, I wanted to put that out there. Um, I, I sort of assumed, Adam, it would be a kind of film, film degree favourite, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm mistaken on that. It wasn't, it wasn't one that I'd come across. Um, you're right in saying that it is French, um, it's from France, and although the interesting thing that I just looked at then was that for some reason it was released in Denmark first. Well, I get, I mean, I, does that speak to that kind of internationalism of silent cinema? Possibly, know. but I mean, by first, I don't mean by a few days, like, I mean, it was released in April in Denmark and October in France, so it, I thought that was quite interesting to consider anyway. I mean, then I mean, didn't they like Denmark have a pretty bustling film industry in the mm. 20s? Yeah. Um, you kind of forget, and I think Norway as well. Like, um, you know, obviously, you know, we can appreciate the films in those countries now, but they were kind of centres in a way that um, is is sort of impossible to to uh, to imagine from from this point of view. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my number three is one that has been mentioned before. Uh, it's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Now, I mentioned before that my honourable mention got kicked out because I found out something about my number three. Now, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, I thought um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and its sequels, so Girl Who Played With Fire and Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, were released as feature films in the UK, but were actually part of a six-part TV series in Sweden. So that's why I just thought I'm not going to include it because technically it's not a feature film. But then I did a little bit of research and what actually happened is they were released as films first and then later after it kind of got the critical acclaim and the worldwide success that it had, they chopped it up into a six-part miniseries and re-released it on TV. 
So that's where I kind of initially got a bit, a bit confused. So from 2009, it was released over here in the UK in 2010, directed by Nels Ardenoplev. It's from Sweden, it's in Swedish, and it's based on the novel of the same name by Stieg Larsson. I think, Sam alluded to this before, I think the English language remake is far superior that's directed by David Fincher. I know we're celebrating world cinema, but it's one of those opinions that I just have and people can agree or disagree. Um, but for whatever reason, this was I was hooked from the story from the get-go when I watched this first, and then uh, I went to the David Fincher one afterwards, and I just thought the Fincher one told it in a completely different and more compelling way, but I still like the Swedish version. Um, the whole enigma of the dead flowers being delivered to uh, Vanger at the beginning, the whole search for the for Harriet Vanger, the ability to create multiple worlds. So we've got the familiar problems of the Vanger family, which could have easily fallen into kind of case of the week style narrative where we were just going to see Blomquist and he was going to go and investigate something. And at the minute he's working on, you know, the Vanger family issue. But actually we then developed the world of Mikhail von Blomkist, his kind of flaws, his job, his life, starting up, trying to go after Venestrum, all that kind of stuff, the midst of his problems. And then you've got the added things of Lisbeth, her horror, the torment of her past. And I think with the, the books had done it already anyway, but the Swedish version, and then again, extrapolated by the American language, uh, the English language version, is that we get the immediate iconic character of Lisbeth Salander. And it's just a shame that while the Swedish films kind of did it justice and did it did the books justice to that character, what we don't get further down the line is that we don't get the kind of English language versions because for whatever reason, Fincher didn't want to carry on and do um played with fire daniel craig i think wanted to but for whatever reason it fell through and then we got later on girl in the spider's web which is a much later novel novel by steer um but for whatever reason doesn't have much or if any of this of the original cast and crew from that american remake by fincher but again i've, I've not read the books um but again I, I would imagine the films definitely haven't done them a disservice at all holly your number three yes so I have one documentary on my list and it's The Act of Killing, which is actually the second Indonesian film on my list. Before we started, Adam uh, gave us the challenge to see if we could have five films from five different countries. And I really just could not choose between this one and The Raids. And they're so incredibly different that I had to include both of them. Um, so The Act of Killing came out in 2012. Uh, it's um, about the um, genocide in Indonesia between 1965 and 1966. Uh, it's made by um, Joshua Oppenheimer and um, produced by Werner Herzog. Um, and uh, it follows, it has a very, very strange premise, which I think puts a lot of people off, and rightly so, that uh, the premise is that uh, the some of the leaders of the death squads during that genocide are given a film crew and asked to make a film in any style that they like about what they did. Um, and initially that sounds like a horrible way to glorify um, the deeds of some very, very terrible people. But I think the reason why it works and why it's such a stunning documentary is that those people are already uh, held up in some circles of Indonesian society as heroes. They were never punished. 
um, their, the death squads slowly morphed into militia groups, which still exist today, um, have these leaders who who committed the atrocities at the time as honorary members of the groups. The groups have um, political current political leaders within them. They um, perpetrate uh, a political corruption. They they um, are still quite violent in some respects. So the only way they the filmmaker could think of including these people who are still very important in Indonesian society was to say, tell your own story um, rather than exposing them. And what ends up happening is they expose themselves. Um, each one of the kind of three men that we focus on uh, most strongly has a different reaction to the filming process and the way they decide to produce their film of, about what they did. Um, one of them slowly becomes disgusted with himself with what he did um, and later on in the film where he walks the filmmaker through um, a room where he did a lot of his killings and he is this man Anwar Congo is believed to have killed a thousand people with his own hands um, he starts retching as he remembers what he did um, and how he killed people in different parts of this room um, another one of the um, the people we focus on really digs in and and starts to to think of himself as e in an even better light as he's making this film he the part of the film that he has most control over is like a western and he's he's like the the good guy who walks through this village killing people and they obviously have actors to pretend to be the people they kill and the actors are traumatized by being in this film and the men who are who are um uh, directing this action have to like calm them down oh that was great acting great crying but now you need to stop crying you need to stop crying now it's okay it's over um and it's it's just extraordinary um at the time it, it had massive um like critical acclaim but there were also people who absolutely hated it there was a uh article in the guardian saying please do not award best um documentary oscar to this snuff film is what they um, they uh, headlined the article with. Um, and so, yeah, I understand why um, it on its face seems to be glorifying violence, but actually like watching it is incredibly powerful. And the, the um, filmmaker made a companion piece, which is more um, centered on the survivors and the victims' stories, which definitely should be watched together with this. It's called The Look of Silence, and that's really good as well. Yes, I I remember that being such a big talking point when it came out. Um, I think it was Mark Kermod as well that championed it a lot. So number twos then, uh, Sam, you all right to go first? Yeah, mate. Um, for my number two, I've gone with um Old Boy, the original, uh, two thousand three South Korean. Uh, I think it's directed by Park Chan Wook. I think it was. Um, yeah, blew my mind this film. Um, I'm not gonna lie, like I was a bit sort of. I think it was one of the first foreign films I watched. Actually, um, it, I didn't know how to feel at the end of it. To be honest, um, I thought it was a clever story. Something I hadn't ever seen in a sort of Hollywood type film. With I think the lead character is it Odai Su. I think his name is, and he'd been imprisoned um, and kidnapped for 15 years, and then just the the idea of um, 
how he gets framed for for murder while he's while he's cooped up in there. And for me, as the audience watching it, I didn't really understand what the motivation was. It was so weird, and I was thinking, what's he done to deserve being here in in fifteen years? And that plays along for ages. And then obviously he meets. I think is it um well there's the lady in it i think Mido, i think her name was and then as the as the plot then gets even further and, and it, we finally are introduced to Wu jin who who obviously is the the person behind all of this and then it starts to unravel as to what what his motivation is and why he's doing it the biggest thing was um obviously the twist at the end where he finds that obviously daisu's had then a sort of um physical relationship with Mido, and then I think it's Wu Jin who reveals that it's actually his daughter, his daughter who had, um, who he thought was lost to him. And then in that twist, it really sort of like makes you sort of think, wow, what, why did he do this? And then it realizes that he's also linked to, um, he's involved in why Wu Jin um, sister, I think, was humiliated, and I think she ended up killing herself because there was sort of a rumor um, in their past. They both went to the same high school, and there was a there was a rumor of incest, so it's purely based on revenge. Um, and then there's that scene with um, powerful scene with, where he sort of tries to show penance and tries to cut out his tongue. Um, and and then in the end, you think that they've made some sort of amends. And then obviously it, it shows it reveals the truth to his daughter in the end. I think there's a button that he presses, and then it sort of reveals everything. Um, so it sort of just takes you back there again. It was um, a really clever film, um, and it had again a lot of dark elements but it was just really clever i'd never watched anything like that before um and it had me going the whole way through especially the start where he's just sort of really motivated and it, it made you feel really claustrophobic as well because uh, he's in there in that room for so long um and you were thinking to yourself what why is it happening but just the thought of how you would not go mad in there obviously he's driven by his his motivation for revenge but um a friend of mine introduced me to that film and he said, you have to watch this. And he he, we, he brought a film beforehand. I don't know if anyone's ever seen uh, Battle Royale. Um, and he, he introduced me to that first and then the second one. And then I think he brought around this uh, old boy at one point. And when we watched that, it was it was obviously with that theme. We were on a, a bit of a theme there at that minute. And it was just um, really different, really enjoyed it. And uh, it's always stayed in my mind, actually. They've tried to remake it in 2013 with Josh Brolin, I think it was, who's in there. And um, I think it's someone from the Marvel Universe. Is it Olsen? Uh, one of the Olsen. Um, forgotten her first name. Yeah, it's um, Elizabeth Olsen. Elizabeth Olsen, yeah. Um, and I've not seen the remake, actually. Have you seen the remake? I have. I have seen the remake. And obviously, it's not as good as the original. Um, I like Old Boy. I think Old Boy's a good film. It's not on my list. Um, it's isn't it, as well? Say again. Spike Lee does the. Yeah, and this was this is the weird thing to me, and I think it's one of those films where if you were to consider the cast and consider the crew, and then consider maybe the reaction to it, you'd think, well, what happened here? What went wrong here? Because you've got people like Josh Brolin and yeah. Elizabeth Olsen, like you mentioned, Samuel L. Jackson's in there, Shalto Copley from District Nine is in there. It's directed by Spike Lee. It looks great. It's a visually, you know, quite stunning film. They've kept all the kind of horror elements to it. They've kept all the kind of physical violence elements to it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take any victims along its way. It's a proper solid 18 rated film. But for whatever reason, it just falls a little bit flat, I suppose. Yeah, it just, uh, for me, I just thought it was so different when I watched it. Anyway, it had the biggest impression 
um, on me. Um, has anyone else seen that film? I mean, I think, uh, I, I haven't, but I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty notorious um, and I kind of want to see it, but also really don't want to see it. <laughs> I understand why. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, and, and you know, maybe 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 your your right up here is maybe what I need to kind of get a move on and actually engage with it myself. Um, worth a watch, Joel. Worth a watch. I know what you mean for sure, but um, worth a watch, I think. Uh, it's my not old boy, but uh, one of the sequels or prequels. Is there one called Sympathy for Lady Vengeance? Yeah. Um, that's my partner's favourite film, um, oh. and I I haven't seen that either, so I really need to see the whole. Um, the whole trilogy yes yeah because I, I must admit with, with old boy it's it like joe mentioned it's quite notorious it's one of those films that i think especially when we started getting these websites where it was like top 10 twists in hollywood cinema and stuff like that and i'd kind of read the twist and i was aware of the twist when i watched the film mm. and it's almost a film of not necessarily two halves but it's a bit like here's a really angry violent martial artish film but then is this mental twist at the end that we're just gonna chuck on there and see what people how and how people react to it yeah i mean i hadn't read any spoilers before i'd ever seen that so it, it was just raw when i watched it yeah yeah all right so uh my number two is the definitely the most recent film um on my list uh it's parasite so Parasite was technically released in 2019, uh, but it was released here in the UK in 2020, so earlier this year, around about January time, February time. Directed by Jong Bong Joon-ho, uh, it's from South Korea, it's in Korean, and it was a massive success. And I mentioned this before about City of God, and I think you can kind of say the same thing for Girl with Dragon Tattoo, um, even The Raid as well, but this was one of those films that just again, cross the boundary of foreign language cinema, of people thinking, oh, we don't watch those kind of films. And I just remember it was shown everywhere over here. It was in all the cinemas. It was in it was in home in Manchester. It was in the print works. It was everywhere. Um, so it had unanimous critical acclaim. It's considered to be the best film of 2019, one of the best of the 2010s, technically. Um, it grossed over 266 million worldwide on a production budget of 11 million, which in itself is a huge number. And it became the highest grossing South Korean film ever. It's, again, one of those rare situations where it just crosses into the mainstream. It did phenomenally well at the Oscars. It was the first foreign language film to win Best Picture. Um, the won Best Director for Bong Joon-ho. It won Best Original Screenplay. This year was the year that the Oscars decided, for whatever reason, to change it from foreign language film to international feature film. So it was also the first film to win, technically, international feature film. Um, and apparently, I read this as well, which was, was quite interesting. It was the first film since 1955, and the third and the third film overall to win both pick, Best Picture at the Oscars and the Palme d'Or at Cannes, uh, which is quite interesting. I didn't think it was that much of a gap between the two. For me, when I watched it, it's just it's a contemporary callback to Hitchcock. It's such a Hitchcockian thriller. Everything, the multi-layered narrative, the kind of simplicity to it, but again, this, this multifaceted nature of we're going to explore this person's family, this person's family, and we're going to do it so intricately and layered, and then everything's going to come together towards the end. And I would say it's better than some of Hitchcock's work. I think it's right up there with things like Vertigo and Psycho, um, but it doesn't quite probably reach my lofty heights of things like Rear Window and North by Northwest. 
Um, but it basically, if you're not aware, it's about a poor family who infiltrate the home and the personal life of the wealthy elitist family. And slowly but surely, they start to take over that family. But then about partway through, we kind of realise that there's actually a bit of a bigger secret going on in this house. Um, my main kind of niggle or quibble with it is that it has such a heavy-handed use of metaphors. I think, Joel, I mentioned this to you when we went after I watched it, where literally you get the character of Kim Ki-woo at the beginning saying things like, oh, it's such a metaphor. It's such a metaphor for this. And it's like, you don't need to tell me about metaphors. I can see them right in front of me. It's fine. But there's no denying the kind of strength that it's got on commentary, on class conflict, on social inequality, and the disparity of wealth. Um, Joe, I've just seen you pop up in the chat. Yeah, it's, it's Marty was the film in 1955 that won Palm Door and the Best Picture at the Oscars. Um, as well with, with Parasite, uh, I'm convinced that it's going to end up on the GCSE film spec at some point. Now, we're at a point where I was in um, CPD and things like that when they first changed the film spec to what it is now. We used to kind of... I suppose, get away with just doing superhero films for the exam. Whereas now we have to do six films across two papers. And what they've said to us and what they kind of made clear to us is that any films that don't, if they're, if they're seeing a trend of films that aren't getting picked for the GCSE and students aren't answering questions on these particular films, that they'll swap and change them. And I just think I'm convinced that when it comes up to review, um, that something like Black Panther is going to find its way into one of the categories because of the kind of critical and cultural response to that. And I think that Parasite is going to find its way into question two and probably kick the wave or Wajda out of the way in order to do that. Um, if that happens, I'm strongly going to think about do I teach Parasite or do I keep teaching Sotsi? And I'm probably going to go the way of Parasite. So that's my number two. Holly? Uh, my number two is from Japan. Um, like I said earlier, when we were talking about Spirited Away, I could not choose between my children of the Ghibli films. Um, so I threw them all out and chose a different animation house. And I've gone with the original Ghost in the Shell from 1995, um, which was probably my first ever anime film. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, have watched all the sequels and the TV shows. Please do not speak to me of the Hollywood remake. But apart from that one, I love them all. But the original is definitely the best. Um, it's from 1995. Uh, the director is Mamoru Oshii. Um, and it's based on the manga by Shirao Masamune. Um, and it follows the um, story of Major Motoko Kusanagi, who is uh, an android, but with a human brain. So we're in a society, a future society, where um, people have um, augmented their brains. They can, um, they can access the internet just through their, their mind. And some have augmented their bodies with stronger limbs, um, Motoko has gone even further. She has an entirely android body and this has caused her a real um, existential crisis. Is she still human? She can't quite remember her life when she had a real body and that makes her worry that perhaps her memories of childhood have been implanted in her brain, that she is in fact just a robot and was never a human at all. And I think that's what elevates Ghost in the Shell from 
other animes and from other action films and sci-fi of the time that it is incredibly um, thoughtful. Um, our main character is very conflicted, but it doesn't spell out what her issues are to us. We, we only realise that she's having this crisis in a really beautiful scene in the middle of the film where she is walking through the streets of Tokyo um, and she sees another person with her exact same body um, sitting in a cafe as she walks past. Um, the the storyline is basically the uh, anti-terrorism organization that the major works for um, is investigating an online hacker called the Puppet Master, who seems to be so um, uh, good at hacking, so um, quick, so resourceful, that they don't believe that this person is actually a person. They think perhaps it's an advanced uh, computer program. Um, and we come to find out that the puppet master perhaps isn't the bad guy we thought. It's another moment where the bad guy is treated with a lot of empathy in a way that uh, Western films often don't. Um, perhaps um, it's a new form of life that an artificial intelligence which has created itself. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's beautiful. The film is absolutely beautiful. The animation is gorgeous, but it's augmented with a tiny little bit of um, computer animation, um, enough that there are these beautiful reflections in the puddles as the major is walking through the streets of Tokyo. There are these neon signs that you see. It's very gray, it's very grimy aesthetic. And then suddenly you turn a corner and it's, it's like Times Square. Um, it, it's it's really gorgeous. And if you want an intro to anime, uh, a, maybe a more or serious anime, um, you can't do better than the original Ghost in the Shell. Highly recommended. Ghost in the Shell was one of those films that I saw around, um, kind of knocking around the same time as Akira and things like that. Maybe not, I don't think they were released similar time, but... It was one of those things that just kept being paired together of like if you want if you want to watch anime these are the two films that you should kind of go to. Um, really boring tidbit about the American version of Ghost in the Shell. It was Ruby's first film at the cinema. Um, because they they did Cine Baby screenings where me and Amy just thought you know what let's go to the cinema, and Ghost in the Shell was the only thing that was on and Ruby slept through all of it and me and Amy were bored stiff through all of it. So. Um, I, I, I forgot to mention that one of the main reasons why I love Ghost in the Shell so much as an action fan and a science fiction fan, I am bored to tears of origin stories. Stop giving me origin stories. They are all exactly the same. And what I love about the first Ghost in the Shell is it's not an origin story. You have to just work out what the world therein is like. Um, you just have to work out who the major is, why she seems a bit glum. Um, who all the people working with her are. Um, it's not a setup, and you never learn who she is. Um, and I think that's that's a really important thing that some Western filmmakers have perhaps picked up. There are some new Marvel films which aren't origin stories. I, on your um, Marvel um, long discussion on your podcast a few weeks ago, you talked about how much you like Spider-Man Homecoming. And I think that's one of the reasons why I loved it as well, is it's not an origin story. He's already there. He's already Spider-Man. Um, and I think you can just do way more with a story when you throw people in, you say, yeah, just catch up. Um, and yeah, Ghost in the Shell does that really, really well. 
Yeah, because I mean, the thing with Homecoming, I think we mentioned it there as well, is that we got the origin story from the first Sam Raimi one, and then for whatever reason they rehashed it with the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man, and Homecoming was just like, we don't, we don't need to do that. Uncle Ben's dead. It's fine. Just forget it. We'll move on. Don't worry. Okay, Joel, number two. So I think my last couple, I've realised that like I've watched these more than the others, but I've kind of forgotten about them. So I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, so for number two, off to Austria and the director, Michael Haneke, uh, and his film, The Seventh Continent, which was his first feature film in 1989. Um, and Haneke is a funny one because his his films are pretty tough to watch. They're pretty hard work. Um, but like I'm, I'm just not sure if I'm too naive a watcher. So like in a film like Funny Games, which was remade in... Um, in Hollywood, um, for some for some reason, frame for frame uh, remake. I don't know why. Sort of doing shot for shot. But uh, a film like Funny Games, like I've, I've spoken to people who just find it hilarious, who like find it so self-referential and ridiculous that uh, they that they just talk about it laughing a lot. And like for me, it's the most horrifying thing ever. So Seventh Continent um, is a bit horrifying too. It's about a family who carefully and assiduously pack up their lives. Um, have a big supper and then all um, kill themselves at the end. Um, and it's just a very strange, unsettling film about family life and what a horrible thing family life is uh, and how we all want to escape from it. Um, I don't know. I just put it out there as something to watch and I need to watch it again. Uh, and I'm glad to have been reminded by this podcast session that I need to do that. So thank you. What a crazy kind of elevator pitch. So it's this family and they all they all kill each other at the end. They all kill themselves at the end. It's fine. Yeah, well, and, and it, it's very, very slow. You don't really see it coming and there isn't much dialogue in the film. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's 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 just really, it's a really weird, unsettling film. I recommend it. So when I was putting this thing together and I was trying to figure out the round robin order, for whatever reason, it's just... it's not gone well um so joe you're carrying on and giving us your number one right now oh, right. okay so so actually i've 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 said the four of the films are governed by one sort of principle but the fifth is 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 really different um and this is the film yo sono amore uh, i am love from 2009 the director of which i don't even know but this like i never go to the cinema to see a film like more than once this is the one film that I've I've seen, I went back and back and back and back to watch it, I think five or six times, and I just couldn't get enough of it, um, which which I don't know, maybe says something about me more than the film, but um, I don't know, I guess it has a particular particular sort of place in my heart and my life from from sort of 2009, 2010 era. I've never watched it on a, on a um, non-cinema screen, and I, I hope I never have to do that um, but maybe one day I will. Um, so this is set in Milan, contemporary Milan, in a kind of upper uh, class bourgeoisie family um, with uh, a kind of big family business in um, manufacturing fabrics. Uh, and it focuses on, on sort of the story of the family, but on, especially on the, on the mother of that family, played by Tilda Swinton, uh, so I think the first time I saw Tilda Swinton in a film, uh, great, great lady. 
um, who, um, in the course of the film, falls in love with the with a friend of her son's, uh, and it's a story of her breaking free from her, you know, sort of banal loveless marriage. You know, not not a particularly bad marriage, but just a bit boring. Um, to 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 seek what opportunities may come with with this uh, exotic. Well, actually, he's not really exotic. He's just he's just a younger man. Uh, this lovely young chef, um, and I think the sort of two things that stand out for it for me, maybe it's just one, actually it's just one thing, um, but it might be the idea of kind of finding the sublime in in quite everyday life and things that I, I don't feel I've seen in other films and maybe it's just because I, I haven't been looking for it. Um, but this is a film where clothing and food have a kind of status that is really, really unusual, really strange. So you'll get these moments when um, like a certain dish is brought in to dinner and, and Tilda Swinton's son, Eduardo, gets really upset that this dish has been made uh, for uh, for the whole family when it should be his sort of personal private dish. It's kind of a betrayal that the, the recipe has been shared in this way. Or, or another moment later on when Tilda Swinton, I can't even remember the character's name in the film because Tilda's so powerful. Um, but where she's just sitting there in this restaurant receiving this this delicate dish of uh, of prawns or something that's been cooked by by the by the young guy um and while i think her mother and her daughter-in-law are sort of just chatting away she bites in and, and is sent off into this absolute reverie surrounding this 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 food um so i think um that's something that resonated with me uh, as someone who likes eating a lot and who, uh, you know, sometimes like growing clothes, um, the way that these, you know, potentially mundane things or ordinary things uh, can take on, on an, an elevated uh, significance outside of language. Um, and I think that the, you know, it takes film to do that. I don't think that could have been done in, in a poem or in a book, um, for me at least. Uh, so there's so much I got out of this this, this film, uh, and I don't know. I, would I recommend it to anyone? Like, I'm not sure. You know, I, I'm not sure if it's, it's worth a watch for anyone else. Um, you might like it, you might not. Um, I, I don't really care because it's sort of just my little my little thing, and I don't really talk about it very often. Um, but next time I see it on the cinema, who knows when that will be? Uh, almost certainly, I'll I'll get my ticket and go in, even if it's on a school night. That's how much I like it. Well, Joel, you're allowed to like it. It's fine. It's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, I, I gave it a bit of a Google because I was interested. And um, I'm surprised you've not heard of the director. So Luca uh, Guadagnino, is, he's switched into, like... Go on, Holly. He's, he's, switched, he's switched over into, like, English language stuff now. Um, and the, apart, apparently his own self-described desire trilogy the first installment of which is i am love and then after which he did a bigger splash and call me by your name which call me by your name was quite a big a hit recently um and then he's just done or his most recent one is the remake of suspiria so actually he's he's you know i mean i guess i guess i guess the, the odd thing is adam is like i have sort of made an effort to find out more about his work um 
because yeah you know I, I think I have I have done that Google in the past um and and now I have I haven't seen any of his other films even mistakenly right um but I just it's, it's, it's a weird one because I with someone like Haneke or um your your Audrea the director of Joan of Arc like I felt like okay, I've got to do this now, right? Okay, I've got that one-hand film. This is going to make this isn't going to make sense unless I I really try to comprehend his own his whole oeuvre. Um, whereas uh, I am love for me, it, it made all the sense it needed to make in in itself. Um, which maybe I don't get that feeling very often from a film. You know, I am I, I you know I do I do that googling usually. Um, you know, I want to see what other what else the actors have been in. I want to see what else the director has done. But this one, like, yeah, I'm seeing these names and I'm saying, oh, right, oh, yeah, he's done some other films. You just think, yeah, do I want to see them? I don't really care. Um, not to, not to, uh, um, you know, be unkind about your suggestion, Adam. Um, no, no. It's, a, it's just a very, I guess it has a weird status for me in that sense, that it's like this, you know, the, the these uh, sublime, um, you know, lunches that Tilda Swinton has, or these sublime um, dresses that she wears, or the sublime countryside in which uh, they exist, and is kind of, um, you know, it's enough in itself. Like those objects, I sort of just have the film, and like that's it. That's 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 all the experience I need. Whereas maybe the other films here, um, you know, my 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 pleasure and interest in them comes from a more uh, a kind of cross section of of, of intellectual and um, you know, more more recreational. Uh, this one is just like outside of the intellectual. Like I'm not prepared to hear any criticisms of it at all. Um, you know, if you've written anything less than a five star review, I just don't care. I think you're uh, you're talking about my dark night there. I think. Yes, very much so. I am love is my dark night. <laughs> <laughs> and from the sounds of it, two completely different films, but yeah. Yeah, and maybe, and maybe, I mean, it's it's an interesting one for sort of the world cinema angle. Um, so set set in Italy, but um, you know, Tilda Swinton obviously not Italian, but she, in fact she plays a a Russian in the film. Um, so she speaks Russian and Italian. Um, it's a little bit confusing when when you don't speak any of the languages that are being used. There's a little bit of English in the film too. Um, yeah, I don't know. So so there's something global about it too, in a, in a in a rather capitalistic way. Which is a shame, but everything else is great. So, have a look. Good, thank you. Holly, you're number two. Sorry, you're number one, even. Oh my days. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think you might need to put me on a timer for this one. Otherwise, I will talk about it forever. So, like, give me a wave or something when I've when I've waffled for long enough. Um, so, <laughs> my number one is uh, Lagan. Once upon a time in India. Uh, which is a Bollywood movie from 2001. Uh, it is um, filmed in India. The language is Hindi. Um, it is a historical sports musical, uh, which is the, the mashup of genres you never thought you needed, but you really, really do. Um, the director is Ashutosh um, Gowarika, who is um, a massive... Bollywood director. This film was actually um, the most ambitious, expensive, and successful 
Bollywood film that had ever been made at the time when it was made. It was it had an eye on the fact that recently the um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon had just like burst out of the kind of Asian cinema box and become a gigantic success. It had an eye on being the Hidden Dragon for um, for Bollywood. It didn't quite do that well, but it did have the best ever international um, box office for a Bollywood film. Um, it's set in the 1890s, the, the height of the Raj. Um, our hero is played by Amir Khan, again, gigantic Bollywood actor who is in everything. Um, and he is um, Bhuvan, who is a poor farmer. Um, and he lives in an area which is ruled by a Maharaja who is completely under the thumb of the local British captain. Um, and there's a drought and they can't play, they can't pay their lagan. Lagan is Hindi for agricultural tax. So essentially the tax on their harvest. So the villagers get together and go to the Maharaja and beg for an extension or a complete, you know, wiping out of the lagan. They have to pay that year because they don't have enough uh, food to even feed themselves. And while they go to meet the Maharaja, they see the English captain playing cricket um, and they think this game looks hilarious. Um, they don't understand it. It just seems like a bunch of white men wearing white running around and pointing at the sky and they don't understand why. Um, and the captain, Captain Russell, is an extremely sadistic man, um, sees this laughter and is very upset about it. And um, when he hears their pleas to reduce the Lagan or, or to wipe it out, he instead triples it unless the villagers can beat him and his um, soldiers in a game of cricket. He um, sets the date for three months. Um, and in three months time, if they can win the game, then they will have three months, three years, sorry, Lagan free. And that would completely change their lives. If they lose the match, then they would have to pay triple and that would completely destroy them. They would have to have to leave their farm. Um, so we have a very um, obvious sports film setup of the complete underdog, the horribly unfair kind of expert in the sport challenging them and them overcoming all these odds. But you've got so much more because it's Bollywood. And I think I have had a very arrogant view, and I'll admit to it being very arrogant, that Bollywood is not going to be my thing. It's cheesy. It's uh, In my head, it was just that, that worst of all film things, which is trying to be everything for everyone. So it's family friendly, and it's got a love triangle, and it's got music, and dancing, and sports, and probably a little bit of action, and really broad comedy. And in my head, I just thought, no, nah, it's not for me. And this film is amazing. It's 224 minutes long, which is a very, very long film. I started grinning like an idiot at about 30 seconds in and that grin did not leave my face until about three hours after I stopped watching it I could not stop talking about this film after I saw it I was just it just made me happy it is like our main character is just the archetypal hero he's so uh, charismatic he's so lovely um, it, within the course of the film he manages to uh, bring down the entire Raj 
bring down the caste system, uh, stop a mob from lynching someone. Uh, he invents spin bowling. He, uh, he invents a new type of dance. He uh, becomes the leader of his village. Uh, it, there is nothing, oh, he, he defends vegetarianism as a concept. Like he could not be any nicer or more successful. And everything that happens is exactly what you expect to happen, but you still scream with joy when it happens. There is one character uh, in the in the cricket team whose only personality trait is he can't catch. So the only thing we know about him, mate can't catch. What happens in the final match? You wonder. Hmm. Does he catch the ball? Does he? We'll never know. But of course we do know. We know he's going to catch the ball, and that's going to make all the difference. And yet I still involuntarily screamed out loud when he did it. And that's just how assured the direction is how perfectly made this film is that it is entertainment it's just pure entertainment it's liquid entertainment watch it right now is brilliant and it also makes cricket almost exciting i'm enjoying the fact that everyone's getting off the bike about their number one pick uh so sam you've got a bit of a a, a step on um but i mean joe joe posted in the chat with two exclamation marks that it's 224 minutes. You just spoke about a nine-hour documentary, mate. You can't say anything. But, but for uh, for the people who don't want to do the maths at home, uh, that's three hours and 45 minutes, just about. Uh, it's three geez. hours and 45 minutes of joy, Adam. Well, that's what it is. I, 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 I'm not knowledgeable about Bollywood, um, Holly. And I don't, I don't know, if that, is that something you could sort of explain for us a little bit like I know the Bollywood films that's not like outstandingly long or that's kind of normal length is it um I, I, I think the idea of the, the length of films is an interesting one um but you seem to it sounds like you just lost yourself in it as it as if you would in a two-hour film or an hour and a half film I every film I watch I'm sure at some point I, I look at my watch or pick up my phone not out of boredom, it's just a, a habit. I didn't look at my watch or pick up my phone. And at the end of it, I was like, oh my God, was that three hours and 45 minutes? It flew past like it was a 90 minute film, like nothing I've ever experienced. I've just give it a little bit of a Google and some of the interesting things here, so it made on an then unprecedented budget of the equivalent of $5.3 million. And I always just assumed that they were massively high budget, these kind of Bollywood films, but clearly not. Um, I remember when when I used to work at the cinema um, and Ashton Cineworld is what they called one of the Bollywood sites, where basically any Bollywood film that was going to come out, we were going to get that as opposed to something that was maybe from another foreign, uh, in a foreign language or um, maybe an art house film. We would get the Bollywood, the, we would get the Bollywood priority. And... In terms of uh, two things, the the idea of a family film to me has always been something that you would go and watch with your mum and your dad and your brother and your sister. I remember serving 22 tickets for one person because they'd literally brought everybody in their family to go and watch this film. There were grandparents, there were kids there. It was everybody. And the, the other thing that I remember from it, actually two things that I remember from it. First of all, they had an intermission halfway through because of how long these films are. 
and we'd always close concessions. So we'd be packing all the popcorn away and doing all that and cleaning everything. And all of a sudden, we'd get all these people coming out going, our film's got a break. I need a drink because we've still got to go back in and do another two hours. <laughs> it's just like, oh, well, hang on a minute. We didn't know about that. And then they are the loudest things in the world. I just remember trying to clean up a screen afterwards and the credits were just the loudest thing ever. But, you know, hugely popular. And I think, like, again, I've spoken to students about this before and they've said, like, so you don't want to get into Bollywood because it's crazy. And, you, you know, you'll never be able to get into it. Um, but, yeah, no, that's good, that. Uh, Sam, go on then. You're number one. Yeah, I'll have to... Mine probably won't be as long because I've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone a bit over, so I'm getting in trouble. Um, yeah, so with mine, um, I basically, I, when I did this list, I was thinking about all the films, and when I've looked at the list, most of them are in the last 20 years. So this is the one that really is the oldest one for me, um, and it's probably just um, like similar to what Joel said. It, I don't know if it's up there with anything that's really that special. It's just it's special to me. Um, and it and it just reminds me of my childhood and um, yeah that's why I, I went with it. So growing up, obviously I said I was into martial arts and things and my dad was um, obviously sorry the person who would sort of encourage that I suppose. And he introduced me to Bruce Lee films quite as a young lad. Um, and at first, obviously it was the classic western, the only western film he did, which was Enter the Dragon. And then I, I was keen to watch some of his earlier stuff, which was in Chinese. Well, it was made in Hong Kong. And um, he does a, a few others. Um, one was made in Italy, The Way of the Dragon, uh, mm. Big Boss, uh, Game of Death, which he didn't fully finish. Uh, but the one I've gone with uh, was in 1972, and this was Fist of Fury. Um, and I've chosen this just mainly because of the powerful story, I think, that's, that, that's involved. So I don't know if people have seen it or not, but basically it's about Chen, um, a, a, a renowned martial artist who returns to his... Um, his school of teaching and his Sifu has, has died. And um, that's like his teacher, his martial arts teacher. And um, during the funeral, um, there's a lot of racial tension at this point between the Japanese dojo and the Chinese dojo, which is where Chen's based. Um, and the in the film, the Japanese, I don't know if it's uh, supposed to represent how it, how it was politically at the time, but the, the Japanese are bullying the Chinese and they see them as inferior. And they often use this phrase dog, like the, they, they call them dogs. And um, there's a scene that's quite powerful in the, theme, uh, uh, in the film where they won't let the Chinese students into the local zoo. I think it's under Japanese occupation. Uh, and there's a sign that says um, no dogs allowed. And, and they point to the sign and they go, that's you as well. And, and Chen gets up there and, and smashes this sign to bits in front of them. Um, and I think what was powerful is that. And then just the fact that later on within the film it turns out that his um sifu was actually poisoned by the local japanese dojo as well so it wasn't just a case of um he died by natural causes so i think the whole film is again based on chen's um revenge and him then going seeking through that revenge on a on like a, a one-man mission which i know many films have come out in modern times about these sort of things but i think this was one of the earlier films really to in my mind to do this um, the martial arts is is amazing to watch. Um, Bruce Lee was just unbelievable um, and just had this grace um, and, and speed and um, just everything. I've read books about him and just his thinking behind martial arts and obviously he creates his own and the sort of battle he had himself with with trying to do that in America. But the film itself is is really powerful in him, him 
trying to find a way to sort of um, show that his culture um, should not be ignored and neither should his dojo. And as it goes through the scene at the end um, where he sort of squares off against most of the Japanese opposition, I suppose, is just like a real spectacle to watch. Um, obviously, with it being 1972, I'm sure you could find many uh, cheesy, funny moments in there that you could probably say it's ridiculous, but it, it had its place in time. But looking back, it, it was just, it still has a place for me. Um, and yeah, it's just, I think it's just a, a special film. And I think what I liked mainly about it is that that aspect of how the how the it, it links politically between the Japanese and the Chinese. And I don't know too much about the history between them two countries, but obviously he touches upon that in that film. And there's a little bit of the clash then with the martial arts as well, with karate and kung fu, and there's differences. And obviously, who prevails in the film is obviously the, the Chinese are trying to show that their kung fu is is superior, but the Japanese have this arrogance that it, it's it's karate, and 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 it just it just enthralled me. Um, and the fight scenes at the end, particularly, are really good. And then the ending, which I just um, found surprising, which is it wasn't like a Hollywood ending in that sense. It was almost like not really the the standard happy ending that you would expect so yeah um it was really really good and i think that just sort of typified um my my love for the sort of martial arts sort of type films and 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 the fact it wasn't just a standard western one people always know enter the dragon and that's the one that people always can talk about but his his earlier films were uh, i think better um so yeah that's my choice um I'm really passionate about that one as well. I think I have a, I think I had a poster um, about some in in my room about that one that stayed up, and people were always confused by it. Like this is a history room, isn't it? Because <laughs> I used to have this poster up all the time. Um, but no, just really, really good. And yeah, it's still, I think it's timeless. It still, still can be put on and watched today. So I think that's my number one. I don't know if anyone's seen it, by the way. Uh, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. Mm. So what did you think? I enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a bit of a, um, you know, I've never been a sort of um, major martial arts films aficionado, uh, but I've always enjoyed a good martial arts movie. Um, but I, I, I don't remember much about Fist of Fury. Is this, is this the one with the Russian fighter in at some point? That's correct, Joel. Um, That's a really big guy. They hire um, a Russian guy in to, to sort of like, you know, uh, give the ranks a little bit more beef, I think. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, I guess I, uh, I I had a little phase when I lived in Hong Kong of sort of going through some of these movies. Um, and I mean, it's interesting picking up on that Chinese dimension that uh, this this it was set in Shanghai, right? Yeah. Uh, not in Hong Kong. Um, and w- the Hong Kong film industry, sadly, when we have, you know, we've only got to it at the end, but better late than never. Um, I don't know. There's a whole, there's a whole world there, isn't there? There's a whole other world of really interesting films that we could do on another podcast. Um, but yeah, great choice. Yeah. So my number one, um, surprise, surprise, kind of alluded to it before. Um, actually, a little bit of a cop out. Uh, I've paired them both together. My number one is the Raid and the Raid Two, because I don't think you can leave the second one out. Because I think if you put them together, you've got some massive spa- uh, scale and epicness that's going on in these films. So Holly's already touched on it with hers. Uh, Sam's already touched on it as well. So the original was released in 2011, 2012 in the UK. Second one was 2014. Directed by uh, Welsh director Gareth Hugh Evans, who um, actually moved to Indonesia uh, with his wife. Um, So it's from Indonesia. It's 
Indonesian language. And uh, just to kind of go through some things that I don't think we've touched on yet. Uh, I, I remember watching this in the cinema. I was really surprised that it actually got released in the cinema. And I watched it um, in what was the AMC, now the Audion, in Deansgate in Manchester. It was one of my best mates' first ever foreign language film. And I wasn't convinced he'd go for it at all um because he's not one to kind of go into anything like this but he loved it he really enjoyed it um because i think weirdly and i don't want to necessarily do it a bit of a disservice it doesn't matter that it's in a foreign language the red the language does not matter at all it's it's secondary to everything else that goes on in that film um one thing that i think is really interesting with gareth evans is that he doesn't storyboard his films instead he does rehearsals and test footage and basically figures it out on a lesser quality camera and then goes and kind of rehashes it after that um we mentioned the dread kind of similarities but to go into the second one so the second one is all about a special forces officer so rama who is the equal waste character from the first film he goes undercover to expose the corrupt police officials that collude with the kind of jakarta criminal underworld so we're moving away from this kind of tiny contained location that we get from the first one into the city streets of jakarta and for me it's it then turns into this huge sprawling crime epic across the city similar to something like heat um and something like the dark knight where it takes it right to up to the next level it turns it up to 11 and it's just pure visceral angry fun and it's just something that you can sit back and just enjoy there's some really brutal scenes in it as well and it's just one of those films that i keep going back to and i just enjoy it the more and more I watch it, both of them, the Raid 1 and the Raid 2. They were going to do a third one, but apparently that never came to fruition. But as with most things, they're still working on an American remake of the Raid. So we'll see what happens with that, not that we need it. Um, Joel, I think because the three of us picked it and you didn't pick it, you need to go and watch the Raid now. Yeah, I. you know what? I, 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 I've never come near the Raid. I. It's a new... It's a new film for me i haven't heard anything about it so i i do need to go and check it out you mentioned sorry to interrupt adam you mentioned um joel the hong kong kind of cinema what you said um adam about raid 2 being very Mm. similar to heat i would say it's very similar to infernal affairs yes um obviously infernal affairs isn't really an action film it kind of feels like an action film but that that kind of undercover that that you know horror at finding yourself still undercover years later and that turmoil I think that brings something really good to the raid 2 I saw the raid 2 before I saw the raid um so I I, they're really close it's like alien and aliens like whatever I saw last is my favorite one yeah they're just I find them both to be absolutely amazing and it kind of opened my eyes to martial arts films i think actually that might have been my way in a little bit thank you very much for listening to our discussion on world cinema i'd just like to thank holly joel and sam for joining me in what has been an extremely varied conversation on world cinema that merely scratches the surface of what's out there for you to discover it's definitely opened my eyes in terms of how much i've been missing out on and what to catch up on next week i'll be back with the latest installment of our genre series looking at the conventions of the sci-fi genre you can help support Farrandon Film by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Farrandon Film, by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film, and leaving a five star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, stay indoors, look after each other, and I will see you next time.